The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 69, The Battle of Red Cliffs. During this podcast series, we are in the thick of ancient Chinese history, telling the stories of the earliest dynasties, which grew up from populations who settled in the arable lands surrounding both the Yellow and Yangtze rivers. Today's story centres on a battle which took place on the Yangtze River, the more stable of the two rivers. The Yellow River was more susceptible to floods and changes of path than the Yangtze River, which was more reliable. Certainly some of the first recognisable Neolithic cultures emerged in close proximity to the Yangtze River and many of its tributaries. Even previous to the Neolithic, the Tsiamreng culture could have been developing the first ceramic pots ever created in world history that may have predated and even influenced the more well-known Jomon ceramics of Japan. We talked about this way back in episode 1, during episode 14, when we were summarising the Paleolithic world. The nearest major modern city to the site of this week's battle is the city of Wuhan, which is inland from the mouth of the river which empties into the East China Sea. Neolithic cultures typical to this region between 5000 and 2000 BCE would have been the Dashi culture, the Chujialing culture and the Shijiahu culture. We haven't really spoken much about these particular cultures due to the fact that the Yellow River cultures were much more notable in terms of their artefacts and demonstration of the Chinese progress. The possibly mythological Xia dynasty, recognised as the traditional first dynasty of China, was a Yellow River culture, but the Shang dynasty that replaced it ventured southwards into the Yangtze River Valley, and we are confident about the Shang dynasty's existence. We described this chapter of Chinese history back in Volume 2, particularly Episode 30. As we discovered during Volume 3, this current volume, the Zhou dynasty took control of the Shang dynasty's territories, including those that reached down to the central Yangtze River. The Shang and the Zhou dynasties represent China's Bronze Age. As we know, the Zhou dynasty lost its influence during the 8th century BCE and although there was still a new Eastern Zhou dynasty, there was a good degree of autonomy for the individual states as China entered the Spring and Autumn period. The state of China that would be responsible for the central Yangtze River was the state of Chu and would soon move their capital city nearer to the Yangtze River before attempting to extend their influence by bringing more lands into their realm. Having the benefits of the Yangtze River would have helped the Chu economy. The Chu would then look to expand its influence northwards towards the Yellow River, but the state of Jin 
would successfully defend this expansion by decisively beating the Chu at the Battle of Chengpu in 632 BCE. It was clear that the states of Eastern Zhou were more than willing to do better with each other to try and gain hegemony over the Eastern Zhou dynasty as a whole. And this would define China's mid-first millennium BCE culture as the states would willingly make war against one another. The state of Chu would take revenge on the Jin and the king of the Chu would become the hegemon over the Zhou dynasty, but this was a brief moment in the sun for the Chu. The state of Jin would befriend the Wu culture at the delta of the Yangtze River to be able to counter Chu domination. During the Warring States period, the state of Chu was under bad leadership and in such a competitive environment, if any state lost ground, then there would soon be another one to step in and take control. As we already know, the state of Qin to the northwest started to become more powerful after making radical legalist reforms, and the badly administered state of Chu would come under more and more pressure. Eventually, the Qin would push down the Yangtze River Valley and take the lands of the central Yangtze away from the Chu. The Qin dynasty took control of all of the lands of China, including the lands of the Yangtze. As we know, the Qin dynasty was very short-lived and within a couple of decades it had collapsed. It would not be long before the Han dynasty took over as the power of China and they quickly moved to secure the lands of the Yangtze by the conclusion of the 3rd century BCE. Now that the Yangtze River Valley was a secure part of a greater Chinese state that was traditionally founded around the unpredictable Yellow River, it made sense to make good the attractive river by establishing a number of irrigation projects to maximise the river's potential to Han China. Dikes would protect the surrounding lands from flooding and agriculture could prosper well. Han China would grow ever more powerful during the 2nd century BCE and would have the ability to conquer all of the lands south of the Yangtze River. The central Yangtze was now very much at the geographical centre of Han Dynasty China. Han China The ancient dynasties of China were the Xia, the Shang and the Zhou. The Zhou emperors were really just sacred rulers who ruled in name only. It wasn't until the Qin dynasty that we see something that more resembled a classical world empire with an emperor at the helm. The Han dynasty effectively took control of the former lands of the Qin and also ruled it as a centrally controlled empire. The stability of Han China could not really be taken for granted with periods of weak rule separated by periods of strong rule. The Han would certainly exploit the opportunity to open up trade links with the cultures to their far west after learning of their existence and of their exotic produce. This could only aid Han China's economy. They would use these factors to expand their influence and create the largest Chinese empire ever known up to this point in history. After the reign of Emperor Wu, the Han dynasty would slowly begin to lose its grip during the 1st century BCE as weak emperors and corruption at the highest levels of government weakened the central authority of the empire. By the end of the century, the central authority had become so weak that a usurpation of the empire took place without opposition. The incoming Qin dynasty was very short-lived. 
its lack of success created a popular consensus to reinstate the Han Dynasty less than a couple of decades later. This would be the start of the Eastern Han Dynasty, distinguished from the previous Western Han Dynasty. In general, the first century and the first half of the second century saw Han China somewhat stable, intermittently controlling the Eastern Silk Road and having to put down the odd rebellion or two, but par for the course for an ancient empire such as this. This is also very readily distinguished as the time and geographical place for the invention of paper as a writing material and the period when Buddhism reached China on a notable level. The real turning point for the Han came in the middle of the 2nd century and it was the start of a sequence of events that would lead to the battle that is the subject of today's episode. The eunuchs who served the royal court were becoming far too influential to be healthy and were starting to influence governmental issues. Equally problematic could be the family clans who could also attempt to monopolise the empire's politics by shifting family members into influential roles. The fabric of a strong empire was being compromised. The opposition to the corruption of Han politics was the Confucian scholars. From wealthy families, not as high as those of the royal family clans, but nonetheless an important part of the governance of the empire with their wise policy making. The eunuchs recognised the scholars as a threat and sought to exclude them from roles of influence. So the scholars plotted to eliminate the eunuchs from Chinese politics, but the eunuchs were too powerful and it was the Confucian scholars who were ultimately excluded and branded as partisans. This meant that corruption had won the day in Han China and the peasants had no voice of reason fighting for their cause, allowing landlords and tax collectors to abuse them financially to their absolute limits. Many peasants had to leave their homes in search of somewhere where they could simply survive in safety and there was much resentment throughout the empire. Some of these peasants would coalesce into secret societies that were steered by individuals promoting Taoist traditions. They would take responsibility for local social and civil matters such as repairs and maintenance and what's more is that they would make it quite clear that Han Dynasty officials would not be welcome to enjoy any kind of hospitality. The Han were being firmly blamed for peasant sufferings. The secret societies would reference their religious beliefs by calling themselves the yellow turbans to represent the colour of the earth. They accepted that the Han government was doing nothing for them and their plight and they saw their only option would be to stage an uprising. The resulting Yellow Turban Rebellion would be something that would stretch the resources of the Han military much further than the Han would ideally like. The uprisings were plentiful and exhausting for the Han army to deal with and despite the fact that they weathered the initial wave of rebellion preventing it from causing a national collapse it certainly weakened the central state and actually made it logistically impossible to maintain control of the entire empire. Many areas were deserted by the central state and left to govern themselves. Cao Cao One of the most important individuals involved in Han's military response to the Yellow Turban Rebellion was a man called Cao Cao 
who had been appointed the captain of the cavalry. Cao Cao was himself an important young figure in the Han Dynasty politics. Despite the fact that he faithfully represented the Han Dynasty, he did recognise the problems that existed within Han China with the eunuchs being too powerful and corruption compromising responsible governance. He supported the state religion of Confucianism which generated the scholars that were the natural enemy of the self-serving eunuchs. Cao Cao was from the Cao family clan and his father was the foster son of Cao Tung, who was actually an imperial court eunuch. He was well educated in the practical skills of life such as hunting and is reported to have been quite adept at getting his own way. He was appointed a district captain by the age of 20 giving him great responsibility and he would have a no-nonsense approach to the role, not allowing the personal status of individuals to make them above the law. He had his own mind, his own beliefs and his own confident approach to his duties. He would still be in his 20s when his imperial state needed him in 184 and when the Yellow Turban Rebellion broke out. He would be successful in his own military duties, though the Yellow Turban Rebellions were not completely eliminated in 184 and still existed as a minor problem within the Empire, so Cao Cao was asked to travel elsewhere to prevent the rebellions becoming powerful again elsewhere. As previously mentioned, Cao Cao believed in state Confucianism, so he would oppose the Taoist ideas of the Yellow Turbans and would take an iconoclastic approach to the problem by destroying Taoist shrines and banning Taoist observances and traditions in his area of influence. Although for Cao Cao, his political position was putting his family at risk, so he chose to take a step back to not make himself a target to those who resented what he stood for. He would return to the capital city of Luoyang where he would accept an important high-ranking imperial military position. We don't really know what role, if any, that Cao Cao would play in the very important events at the Royal Imperial Court in the years 189 and 190. A man called Dong Zhuo was invited to lead a plot to kill the most prominent eunuchs at the Imperial Court. Dong Zhuo would oblige and he would be successful in deposing the eunuchs and he would also ensure that a puppet emperor would be installed. And then it became clear that Dong Zhuo would have personal ambitions that would also not be beneficial to Han China either. So another warlord called Yuan Shao would form a coalition to depose Dong Zhuo from power and he would approach Cao Cao, who had already started raising his own army away from the court of Dong Zhuo, which Cao Cao had opted to not be a part of. Cao Cao would agree to bring his army in support of Yuan Shao's plans against Dong Zhuo. Dong Zhuo was unable to resist his opponents and was run out of Luoyang and out of power. Now if Cao Cao comes across as a mature and measured leader with a wise head on young shoulders, then we should also balance the biography by mentioning his reaction to his father's death in the year 193. His death was reported to be at the hands of an army of a man called Tao Tian, the governor of the Xu province. Cao Cao's response would be to massacre thousands of the Xu province population in a heartless and bloodthirsty act of rage, 
demonstrating a darker and more ruthless side to his personality. Such acts would mean that other governors and military leaders would have to respect his capabilities and as such he would begin to nurture his own centre of power. He would also coerce the young teenage Emperor Tsieng to move his capital city to Chu City, which would be somewhat central to Cao Cao's area of domination. Cao Cao appeared to be becoming like a de facto regent, arguably the most powerful of the many warlords controlling their local areas in Han China, following the collapse of a centralised imperial control. The one warlord that he had to maintain respect for was his former coalition ally, Yuan Shao. It was likely that both leaders believed that China needed to be reunited, and it is likely that both leaders would see themselves as the rightful man to do the job. However, a hasty call to arms could prove to be costly. One wrong move and strategical advantage could be given to your potential adversary. So when Cao Cao tried to approach Yuan Shao in peace, Yuan Shao did not trust him one bit. The tense situation would exist from 196, and there was an argument that Yuan Shao should have moved in immediately as Cao Cao's forces would only improve over time. Yuan Shao didn't know. Cao Cao wouldn't particularly make any secret of expecting a battle though, and he would absorb more territory to make his army bigger, and he began to fortify the southern banks of the Yellow River. Yuan Shao would have no choice but to attack, and he would attempt to cross the Yellow River with a numerically superior force in the year 200. His goal was to rescue Emperor Tian from Chiao Cao. Both armies were involved in a war of attrition throughout the year, along the Yellow River. Both were attempting to take advantage of any tactical foothold, but when Cao Cao learnt of the location of Yuan Shao's supplies depot, he destroyed it before launching an all-out successful attack on the numerically superior forces of Yuan Shao. Yuan Shao was forced to retreat and Cao Cao would pursue him northwards. The entirety of the lands north of the Yellow River would take seven years for Cao Cao to secure under his own rule due to the vastness of the territory and the resistance of the successors to Yuan Shao. But it had indeed been achieved by the year 207. It was now time to turn his attention southwards towards the lands south of the Yangtze River, some of which were being held by someone who had betrayed Cao Cao some years before. Liu Bei Liu Bei was a young, ambitious and charismatic warrior who also joined the campaigns against the Yellow Turban rebels during the later years of the 2nd century. When the time came for the coalition against Dong Zhuo that involved both Cao Cao and Yuan Shao, Liu Bei would choose not to get involved. Liu Bei was always quite closely linked to the Xu province, which we mentioned as being the province that attracted the wrath of Cao Cao after his father had been killed there in 193. Liu Bei would be in the service of the Xu governor, Tao Tian, and as a result found himself defending Xu province against Cao Cao. 
As we know, Tiao Tiao devastated the population of the Xu province. The governor, Tao Tian, died from illness just a short time after Tiao Tiao's invasions, and it would be Liu Bei himself who would become the new governor of the Xu province. Liu Bei's tenure as Xu province governor would soon be troubled by another warlord called Li Bu. Li Bu had been a thorn in the side of Cao Cao trying to muscle in on his lands while Cao Cao was campaigning against the former Xu province governor, Tao Tian. Cao Cao had chased Liu Bu out of his lands and so Liu Bu would turn his attention towards the new Xu province governor, Liu Bei. Liu Bu would successfully run Liu Bei out of Xu province and Liu Bei would have to run to the man who he had opposed just a couple of years earlier, Cao Cao. Cao Cao feared that Liu Bu might strike up an alliance with the northern warlord Yuan Shao and so he chose to support his former enemy Liu Bei and they combined forces to strip Liu Bu out of his place in Xu province. Liu Bu would be captured and executed by hanging. It may have been the case that Liu Bei expected to receive his province back, but he didn't. So he'd take it back by force against the will of Cao Cao. So the alliance between Liu Bei and Cao Cao was very short-lived. Cao Cao would not allow Liu Bei to be the governor of the Xu province and defeated him in battle, causing him to flee into the arms of Yuan Shao in the north. After Yuan Shao's defeat at the Battle of Guandu in 200, Liu Bei fled south to the Jing province where he would find that military leaders and provincial governors had a growing concern with the expanding power of Cao Cao and they would all share the knowledge that Cao Cao would soon turn his attention southwards to the lands south of the Yangtze. Sun Quan Sun Quan was a man with a completely different background to Cao Cao and Liu Bei, and he was a mere infant at the outbreak of the Yellow Turban Rebellion. Sun Quan's older brother was Sun Tzu, and Sun Tzu would decide to create his own power base in the Jiangdong region, south of the Yangtze River during the 190s, while his younger brother Sun Chun was an adolescent. Sun Tzu would have very likely been aware of everything taking place to the north with Cao Cao becoming stronger and stronger and inevitably having ambitions that would lead to Sun Tzu's lands himself. So it has been rumoured that Sun Tzu was already assembling a force to invade the territory of Cao Cao while he was embroiled in the long drawn out conflicts with Yuan Shao on the Yellow River. We don't know if Sun Tzu was actually doing this but it is feasible. The reason that we don't know is because Sun Tzu would die from wounds in the year 200 caused by an assassination attempt before he could even take any kind of action. Sun Tzu's lands would pass to his 18-year-old younger brother, Sun Chun. Sun Chun would spend the first decade of the 3rd century gaining more influence over more lands, defeating local rivals and benefiting from wise counsel within his ranks. As the decade continued, the threat of Cao Cao to the north 
started becoming a serious problem with Sun Quan becoming ever more aware of the obvious intention of Cao Cao to reunify Han China. Prelude to the Battle Cao Cao, now securing the lands of North China and the northern frontier, had now managed to gain an absolute authority over the imperial government, despite the fact that Emperor Tsien was now in his 20s. He was simply a symbolic emperor for Han China, with no freedom to rule. Cao Cao was named as the Chancellor of Han China before turning his focus south to the Yangtze River and beyond. He already knew that he would have to tackle Sun Chun when he did cross the river. We mentioned that Liu Bei had fled southwards from Cao Cao's side of the river to the Jing province. Jing province was being governed by a man called Liu Biao, who had a natural territorial enemy in the young and ambitious Sun Qian. Liu Biao died of an illness just as Xiao Xiao was carrying out his southward invasion, and Liu Bei fled with the son of Liu Biao, whose name was Liu Qi. Cao Cao captured a large number of the Jing naval fleet and a large number of the populace that had not escaped alongside Liu Bei. Liu Bei had to consider his options, but he would choose to head to the lands of Sun Quan to secure an alliance against the ever-growing power of Xiao Xiao. Xiao Xiao had already sent envoys to Sun Quan to give him the message that he had absolutely no chance of success in opposing him and that he should surrender. Sun Quan might have believed this was to be his only option, but for the emergence of Liu Bei and the prospect of a southern alliance. We can't be sure of the total numbers that sized up against each other for the fateful battle, but the southern alliance was measured in tens of thousands against Xiao Xiao's forces of hundreds of thousands. The Battle of Red Cliffs Cao Cao would sail his war fleet full of soldiers from the captured port of Jiangling eastwards along the Yangtze River to meet with the combined forces of Liu Bei and Sun Quan approaching from the opposite direction from the port of Chaisang. The two fleets would meet halfway and the forces of Liu Bei and Sun Quan would be more than a match for Cao Cao's larger force, and Cao Cao was forced to dock on the northern banks and stall for time while his army recuperated and prepared for another attack. It was at this point that Cao Cao, despite not being able to gain an advantage, was clearly superior in numbers and had every reason to feel confident about ultimate victory. Sun Quan would approve plans to officially surrender to Xiao Xiao and after relaying the message to him, Sun Quan prepared a contingent of the most important ships to sail to the north bank of the Yangtze River to discuss the terms. Xiao Xiao must have been overjoyed to have believed that he had conquered Sun Quan with little in the way of damage and a naval fleet in his possession. If this seemed all too easy, then the reality of the move soon became apparent. The contingent of diplomatic ships sent to Cao Cao were ghost ships and soon turned into fire ships, set ablaze, 
and sailing in the direction of the anchored fleet of Cao Cao. Cao Cao was helpless to stop these fire ships from colliding with his own acquired fleet, spreading the fires to them and destroying many ships containing many troops and many resources. This was a sudden and disastrous turn of events for Cao Cao, as he had been outwitted and tricked. Cao Cao's forces were sent into a panic and this is where Liu Bei and Sun Quan attempted to capitalise by sailing over the Yangtze to engage in battle. This was their golden opportunity to resist Cao Cao and Cao Cao realised that he was now on the back foot with his command in disarray. Cao Cao destroyed what was left of his naval fleet before it would fall into enemy hands and retreated northwards on foot. However, the lands north of this point of the Yangtze River were waterlogged and marshy, and escape at any speed and in any form of order was impossible. Many more of Cao Cao's soldiers simply couldn't make it north to safety. They were pursued by the Allied forces, to their detriment however, not realising that they themselves would also be trapped in the marshlands. Their work had been done though and Cao Cao had to retreat north to regroup despite entering the conflict with superior numbers. Aftermath Sun Quan was able to expand into the former territories of Liu Biao in the Jing province and appointed Liu Bei as the new governor. In the two years after the Battle of Red Cliffs, both Liu Bei and Sun Quan would hound the commanders of Cao Cao stationed on his southern frontier. Cao Cao would continue to operate as the de facto ruler of the Han Dynasty, with Emperor Tian ruling in name only. But he would return north and attempt to secure more northern lands following his humble defeat at the hands of the Southern Alliance. Sun Quan now had control of a huge expanse of land in the southeast of China. Liu Bei, as governor of the Jing province under Sun Quan, had his own ambitions and invaded lands to the west called the Yi province and under the rule of a provincial governor called Liu Zhang. He would be successful in taking control of this huge province and establishing his own great swathe of land in the west, rivalling the expanse of land under Tiao Chao in the north and the lands of Sun Quan in the southeast. Cao Cao would be recognised as the Duke of Wei, referring to the lands under his rule. In 220, Cao Cao died, not realising his dream of unifying China. His son, Cao Pi, succeeded him and deposed the insignificant Emperor Tian of Han, thus ending the Han dynasty for good. Cao Pi would then declare himself as the Emperor of Cao Wei, referring to the lands that his father Tiao Chao had conquered. The outgoing emperor was given his own duchy within Tiao Wei and when he eventually died in 234, he was honoured with an emperor's burial. Liu Bei and Sun Quan had fallen out after Liu Bei's conquest of the West as Sun Quan demanded to take control of the Jing province back and Liu Bei refused. Sun Quan 
took the territory by force and Liu Bei had to take care to be highly diplomatic due to the threat of having two great enemies in Sun Quan and Xiao Chao. He was to have to choose his battles carefully. After the death of Xiao Chao in 220 and the establishment of the new empire of Xiao Wei, Liu Bei would declare himself the emperor of Xu Han, his own territories. Tensions with Sun Quan continued until Liu Bei eventually died in 223. Sun Quan's territories initially cooperated with Xiao Wei as it was probably not wise to have two enemies with Liu Bei causing problems on his western frontier. However, Sun Quan soon turned on Xiao Wei and gradually made his territory more and more autonomous again before declaring himself the Emperor of Eastern Wu in 229. He would hold this title for the next 23 years before he died at the age of 70 in the year 252. This was the Three Kingdoms period that followed the fall of Han Dynasty China. The Three Kingdoms are recognised at Xiao Wei, Xu Han and Eastern Wu and they were established somewhat by the three men who had been at the forefront of the Battle of Red Cliffs, making this a significant event in Chinese history, with three iconic and now timeless figures. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. It's a wonderful story, this uh, story surrounding the Battle of Red Cliffs. So it's not just the battle itself, you know, which in itself is a great story, but the whole um, background to it and the aftermath is is equally fascinating. And it's the stuff of Chinese legend and um, somewhat uh, part of um, scriptures written... um, or dramas, if you like, written in the sort of late medieval, early modern period of Chinese history, and uh, not not totally unlike with um, Shakespeare writing about Cleopatra and Julius Caesar. So it's it's really is a legendary story in Chinese history. So it's a, a pleasure to have been able to bring it to you um, today. Now, of course, if you enjoy the History of the World podcast and you want to contribute towards its success, remember it's it's an amateur project and it's uh, and it's sort of done without any kind of um, you know funding or anything like that. It's all done uh, purely at, uh, at our own expense. Um, you can uh, contribute towards the upkeep of the podcast. You can make monthly donations via the patron link if you just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and click on patron you can make a, a a monthly donation we do give out gifts and rewards for those people who contribute um anything over any period of time you know you can accumulate um a a right to to claim a a reward or a gift and um we uh recognize you as a lifelong member of the history of the world podcast Illuminati and uh, this week we're pleased to welcome Gethin Reese and Pierre Secord into the History of the World podcast Illuminati so thank you so much for helping to keep the podcast going it really 
does uh, help and um, you know it, you're contributing towards a very bright future for this podcast and, and maybe for many 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 years to come so um, I can't really emphasize uh, how important um, your contributions are for the for the future of the project so thank you so much listener messages we did get a message from a gentleman called Chris Hooker who, who sent a link to um, uh, the uh, latest development in terms of the research into um, the ancient Aboriginal migration across to Australia, which was something we spoke of in Volume 1. Um, I have asked him if he can share that with us all, so um, hopefully he'll do that. So, But thank you, Chris. Th- thanks for um, sending that on to me. Um, message from uh, Becca Pohl, who's put, uh, Kia ora, Chris. My name is Becca and I'm a listen from, listener from Napier, soon to be Auckland, New Zealand. Um, I thought, well, I, thought, I guess that means that you're moving from Napier to Auckland and that Napier isn't soon to become Auckland. So um, hopefully I've understood that correctly. I really enjoy your podcast and I mostly listen while at work. I'll try to keep this short and sweet. I really enjoyed the ancient history episodes of India and Ashoka the Great, as well as the profiles of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. I've also started playing the video game Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is set during the Peloponnesian War. So I thoroughly enjoyed ancient Greece episodes. It's uh, that's interesting. I, I, everywhere I go, I seem to find video games that are devoted to um, periods of history, and they seem to be incredibly sort of accurate from what I can see. There, some of them even use video games to create YouTube videos. I, I'm not a big video game player, so I, I don't know um, anything about them really. But um, it's incredible really like to know that how much obviously how much research goes into these things so incredible i can't wait for you to do episodes on both the fall of constantinople and of course the man who ended uh, the byzantine empire mehmet ii also some famous new zealand people too and events also, please, please, please do not skip out on the history of New Zealand. We may be a very young country in comparison to England and America, but we have a rich history. I'm not a historian and I got kicked out of sixth form history class for proving my teacher wrong. Oh, I wonder, wonder what that was for. Uh, but I do know a lot about New Zealand history. Please feel free to get in touch with me if you'd like my help with New Zealand history when you get up to it. That's very kind of you, Becca. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, very intriguing getting kicked out of um, history class for proving your teacher wrong. It'd be interesting to find out more detail about that. But yes, yeah, certainly um, we'll definitely be covering New Zealand history and, and certainly the Maoris of New Zealand are, are quite, um, quite an important um, topic of history. The, the whole um, Pacific Island migration really is um, part of you know, so one of the final pieces of the jigsaw of our colonisation of planet Earth, really. So we'll we will be covering that. Eric Morgan has written in and has put um, heads up, unless I'm completely wrong. Volume three, episode sixty-eight, hen number two, eight minutes twenty-eight seconds. You refer to the Yan gaining control of Central African states. This must be an error, probably Central Asian. I hope this helps, Eric. I was going to make a bit of a joke about that and go back and and grab the the uh, the snippet, the 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 actual um, soundbite of that. Um, 
But um, I'm short of time this week, I apologise. And, and yes, I did say the Central African states, and it is indeed wrong. It is, of course it's wrong. The Chinese were nowhere near Africa unless they were um, lost going down the Silk Road. But yes, um, yeah, that was a mistake. And um, yeah, I am guilty sometimes of, you know, often I get tongue-tied and sometimes I, I you know, I'm, my brain sort of, I get a bit of a, a sort of a brain... Uh, uh, lapse in concentration, I think, is the best way to call it. So, uh, but thank you, thank you. And it's really helpful if anyone does spot any errors in information or or any anything like that. I really, really do appreciate it when you write in, so that we can housekeep and correct things. You know, so uh, don't feel shy. You're not um, you're not going to upset me. If anything, I'm going to be grateful. So, thank you, Eric. Um, and then uh, let's have a look at uh, reviews. Let's see who's reviewed the podcast this week. Firstly, uh, we're going to go to R.W. Ryburn via Apple Podcasts. Uh, United States of America has put superb. Just finished volume one and wanted to pause before I continue to volume two to say that I'm enjoying the History of the World podcast immensely. Great presentation and storytelling, Chris. Uh, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Very nice review. Uh, McSlackens from the United States of America has put fantastic listen. Chris does a wonderful job doing deep dives into historical events, but at no point does it feel like he's talking down to you or just reading bullet points. He presents like he's telling a story and bringing you along the journey uh, on the journey. I highly recommend subscribing to this podcast. And then uh, Foghorn Senior has put the the bee's knees. If you want a fully comprehensive podcast on world history, look no further. After three episodes, I was totally hooked. Chris really does a fantastic job describing the journey of humans through times, from cave drawings to the first civilizations and beyond to dynasties, battles and intrigues. His delivery is superb. He's extremely detailed, unbiased, enthusiastic and not at all intimidating. In just a few weeks, I've torn through these episodes and I plan to start back at the beginning ones I've caught up. Um... Well, I can't thank you all enough, really. Uh, amazing messages that you all send and like so full of praise and, and positivity that, um, you know, it really, uh, you know, almost brings a tear to my eye. So thank you so much, everybody, for everything that you're doing for the project. We're, uh, we're um, we, you know, we're succeeding together, you know, like, so I, I don't think I could do this without, your support and uh, whether that be financial or uh, morally um, that would that you know it all contributes towards the health of the podcast make no mistake about it so I'm incredibly grateful to each of you and all of you next week we'll be moving on we'll be going on to sort of basically we've we've got a couple of episodes left really with China and and um what I'd like to do really is sort of set up the this period following the three kingdoms, and um, we've we've sort of covered all the major dynasties of the classical period of China, and um, we've really got to maybe just build a platform towards the medieval dynasties that we'll be covering in volume four. So so next week's episode is sort of the aftermath of the Han Dynasty, if you like, and the and the and the centuries leading up to the medieval period. And uh then uh we we do sh- uh, well we should really look at the emergence of the Silk Road. It's such an important aspect of world history that we really 
um, should not ignore it. So before we move on to the Americas and, and beyond, um, that's really the plan of action in terms of t- tying up the Far East. So um, that's what you've got to look forward to over the next episode or two. Uh, in the meantime, um, you know, continue to sort of write in and send me your messages and, and don't forget to use the social media platforms. We've got Jenna Osborne working very hard on the unofficial History of the World podcast uh, fan group, and um, and if you've not if you've not joined up, you, you're missing out on on so much activity and and links of history and, and even um, entertaining memes being shared. So so please do sign up. Um, there's there's ever growing interest and a lot of activity on that page. So um, you know it's approved by the History of the World podcast. It's unofficial, but it's certainly approved and. Um, and go along and join it today if you can so um thanks to jenna for all her her hard work and um you know let's continue to sort of have a community about this podcast it's it's a great thing to see anyway next week uh we're moving on to the following centuries after this episode and um until then uh we'll look forward to seeing you next week don't forget to be good Come to the History of the World Podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati? Drop me a line at History of the World Podcast at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.